So on our first Christmas together, one of the gifts that I got for Lauren was a customized star map of the night sky from the night that we got married. I got it from this company where you put in the coordinates of where you were and and you put in the date and you get this frame poster showing you the exact position of all the stars and all the constellations of, of what the sky looked like on that night. And so hanging in our bedroom is a poster of exactly what the sky looked like on August 12, 2017 at 33.5207 North and 86.8025 West. And I was looking at that poster this week and thinking about it, and it's a, it's a really cool idea. It's just really cool to be able to look back and say, this is exactly what the sky looked like on a date that was very special and important to me. And I got to think about it, but yeah, it's really cool, but why is it cool? I'm not a meteorologist. I'm not a historian knowing the exact location of the Big Dipper or Orion's Belt or Ursa Major on one random day two years ago has never been of any practical value to me at all. So if it's never been actually practical or useful, then how is that company even in business? Like what, what itch is it scratching in us? What is it about the stars and about our lives that make us want to mark our lives by the stars? Now, this, I think this is where a lot of people can kind of get into, you know, astrology and, and knowing your sign and whatnot. I'm really, you know, not a big fan of that. I think that could get into mysticism and idolatry pretty quick, if not immediately. But I think that the reason that we love to look at the stars, the reason that we love to contemplate the vastness of space, the reason that we love to stand on the beach and look out at the ocean, the reason that we love to go skiing down a huge mountain is because even in our secular age, deep down, everyone loves to feel transcended. Everyone loves to feel like they are a part of something that is much bigger and much greater than themselves. And and just how you know, things work best when uh, they are being used, how they were designed and made to be used. I think there's just something about our souls that when we find ourselves in, in the midst of God's vast and big and powerful universe, when we feel that, there's just something in our soul that cannot help but to rejoice. And ever since God created the universe and mankind, God has been using the stars, his creation, almost as a, as a call to worship for our soul, saying, you know that there is someone greater who has made me. Now go and worship him. He does it every day with all of us in a very general way, and he did it in the passage that was read for us this morning with the wise men in a very specific way. Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2 says that when the wise men saw the star of Jesus or the star of Bethlehem, when they saw the star rise, that they set out on their journey to worship him. Now, this is just one of those moments in where scripture does not indulge our curious minds. When I read about a star rising and leading wise men from, you know, a very far place, just a bunch of questions pop up in my mind. Was this a comet? Was it 
a supernova? Was it some kind of you know, weird phenomenon that happens when two planets you know, come into alignment with one another? Like, how does a star rise and then lead people hundreds of miles and then divert course just you know, five or six miles? And then how does a star come and rest over a child? Like it just, none of this really makes sense. I think the only thing that we can know is that this star is not behaving like a normal star. There is no way that this was a common or a natural event. And scripturally speaking, the only person who has the authority and the ability to name and to direct stars is God himself. So it is clear that God himself is the one who is using this star as a guide for the wise men to lead them to Jesus. God is exerting his universal and his cosmic power to make Jesus known and worshipped. It's not too bad for a baby announcement. Most people just send a card or post on Instagram. But when God's son comes into the world, God himself breaks the rules of natural law. And he uses a supernatural and celestial event to announce the birth of his son. And quite frankly, God sovereignly and specifically governing all the bodies of space is probably the least surprising thing going on in this passage. Just as you keep reading, the the surprising or the shocking ante is just going to keep getting upped and upped and up. And we see that continue when you look at who is present to celebrate the birth of Jesus, namely the wise men have to remember that Matthew was writing to a specifically Jewish audience, and Matthew goes out of his way to highlight that these men were from the east, probably from Babylon or Persia, meaning that they were Gentiles. So any Jewish hearer of that day, at minimum would have been surprised, but more than likely they would have been offended. Matthew, you, you mean to tell me that the very first people to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and to bow down at his feet and worship him are Gentiles? I mean, Matthew, just back in chapter 1, like you were highlighting Jesus' Jewishness. You were connecting Jesus with David and with Abraham. It is just the Jewish who's who. It is a Jewish hall of fame over in Matthew chapter 1. But Gentiles are the first people? I mean, Matthew, you know what some of our favorite prayers are. I'm a good Jew. I wake up every day and I thank God. I pray and I thank God that I am not a slave, that I am not a woman, and that I am not a Gentile. I think what would have been a shock and an offense to first century Jewish hearers should be a comforting reminder to us. That even as a baby, before Jesus had ever preached any sermon or performed any miracle, he is showing us that his kingdom is much more expansive and much more inclusive than we often think. Understandably, we get so locked in into our own lives and our own church and our own city and our own country, and we forget that God is building a global kingdom. I see the truth of Revelation chapter 7 here at Jesus' nativity, that for all of eternity we are going to surround the throne of God and that we are going to worship him with a great multitude that no one can number. People from every language, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Something that Mark and I discuss every week as we study a passage, we, we ask, how can this passage help promote a gospel culture? 
here at Redemption Parker. We ask, what is it about this passage that can help Redemption Parker exude the, the love, the friendship, and the gentleness that Jesus was famous for? And like Mark said a couple of weeks ago when we started studying Matthew, that as we enter into 2020 and as we enter into this election year, it is no coincidence that we are choosing to study the book of Matthew. The, the dominant theme throughout all the book of Matthew is the kingship and the kingdom of Jesus. And in 2020, I'm afraid that we are going to feel the pressure to place too much of our faith and too much of our Christian witness into earthly political structures. We are going to feel the pressure to live for the wrong king and the wrong kingdom. And so as we enter into a year that is undoubtedly going to be filled with a lot of name-calling and indignation and drawing, you know, unbiblical lines in the sand as a test for Christian faithfulness and orthodoxy. What if we did our best as a church to have a revolutionary and countercultural gospel culture? What would happen if we had a gospel culture that has room for someone who's different than you? What if we have a gospel culture that shows that our foundational unity is not in our politics, but in our God? A gospel culture that shows that no one person and no one church can uh, reflect and portray the fullness of Jesus and his kingdom, and that we need the wisdom and the strengths and the gifts of those who are different than us. I see that being modeled for us in some of Jesus' very first days here on earth even at Jesus' baby shower. As people from different parts of the world with a different language and different values, they are welcomed in. And they find room to worship at the feet of Jesus. And so merely the presence of the wise men would have been a shock to Matthew's audience. And what the wise men actually said would have caused even a bigger stir. They were going around and they were asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. Now, where I'm from, we'd say, then be fighting words. Because if you are confessing that one person is king, the implication behind that is that nobody else is king. Just notice the contrast here. In the days of Herod the king, the wise men are going around asking, where is Jesus the king? And so in confessing that Jesus is the king, these wise men are rejecting that Herod is the king. They are rejecting his reign and his rule. So that's why in verse 3, it says that Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, if you know anything about Herod, you know that that is going to be the most mild way you could possibly put Herod's demeanor. If you just read the rest of chapter 2, you know that Herod is going to commit infanticide. He is going to have every single young boy in Bethlehem murdered. We know from other historical sources outside of scripture that Herod was an absolute megalomaniac. He was just so obsessed with his own power and his own authority and his own kingdom that eventually just that sinful self-centeredness ran his course and he just had an absolute break with reality. He ended up killing his uncle he killed his own wife, he killed his mother-in-law, he killed his brother-in-law, and he killed three of his own sons. 
He was just this insane tyrant who became so obsessed with protecting his own authority and his own power that when he saw anyone or anything as a threat, there there was only one response that he could think of. I have to kill them. So when Herod hears that these wise men from a strange country are going around saying, where is Jesus, the king of the Jews? I want to worship him. Herod does what he always does. So in verse 4, it says that Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they go on to quote a rather wordy verse from Micah, just saying, Bethlehem is where the Messiah is going to be born. Now I want us to notice something here, just for a moment. I want us to contrast the wise men from the east with the chief scribes and or the the scribes and the chief priests, the supposed wise men from Jerusalem. So the wise men from the east, they saw a star. They saw a star and they set out on a very long journey. If they had come from Babylon, if they had gone along the main trade route, that would have been an 800 mile journey. Say they averaged 20 miles a day, that would have been a 40-day journey. They see a star and they take off. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the scribes, these wise men from Jerusalem, they know their scriptures inside and out. I mean, they just quoted from Micah. Like, who here can just quote from Micah? They knew their scripture better than anyone, and yet when they hear the rumors and when they see the star... The scribes and the chief priests can't even be bothered to make a little five-mile journey down from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see Jesus. I think that there is a good warning for us here this morning about the danger of knowing your Bible, but missing or ignoring Jesus. These scribes and these chief priests, they knew their Bible backwards and forwards. Again, how many of us can quote Micah at the drop of a hat? But even though they knew their Bible better than probably any of us ever will, we see that they got it wrong because their Bible knowledge did not lead them to worshiping and to loving Jesus. I want to be careful here. I don't want to create a a false dichotomy. I think a lot of times we're presented with this false dichotomy that you can either, you know, know your Bible or you can really love God and that you can't do both. That. I don't believe that at all. I I believe that you cannot love what you do not know. That your head and your heart should naturally go together. The problem with the scribes and the chief priests is that they had allowed their their head and knowledge to outpace their heart love. They've just become these theology nerds who spent hours and hours and years and years studying the the minutiae of the Old Testament. And when the very one who all the Old Testament had been pointing towards with a cosmic announcement in their own backyard, their hearts had been so cold and so disengaged for so long that they couldn't be troubled to take just a little walk to inquire to see if this was the Messiah. So brothers and sisters, as we enter into this new year, I hope and I pray that we are going to commit ourselves to this book. That we are going to give our time and our energy and our lives believing that we do not live by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from God's mouth. And beyond that, let's avoid the dangerous example of 
the scribes and the chief priests. I pray that every time that we open this book individually on our own and when we open it corporately as a church body, that our knowledge and our understanding of God would grow and that with that, our hearts would grow kinder and warmer to Jesus. And so while the scribes and the chief priests are a bad example for us, we see that the wise men from the east are getting it right. So then in verses 10 and 11, it says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Now, if you are not a believer, if you would not consider yourself to be a follower of Christ, I I wonder what you would think of the wise men's response in these verses. See, I think that these wise men from the East are very similar to a lot of uh, the people in this room. These, These wise men had heard of Jesus, they didn't know everything about him. They didn't know everything that he would do, but, but they were interested. They were asking questions. They would be what you know, we might call a seeker. They would consider themselves to be spiritual, but, but not really religious. So they had come from the East. They probably mixed and matched a bunch of spiritual practices, and they were just saying, okay, who, who is this Jesus? So to the person who would identify as being like one of those wise men, let me, let me just make one incentivizing observation. What was the one emotion that the wise men felt when they encountered Jesus? Verse 10 says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they encountered Jesus, their hearts melted and their knees buckled and they could not help but to worship him. In in the Greek, when Matthew is describing the wise men's joy, he's just piling on adjective after adjective after adjective. It's not great grammar. It's not great writing. But he is very clear that the one thing that these wise men felt when they met Jesus was their hearts exploded with joy and happiness. And believe it or not, 21st century wise man or wise woman, joy is what is offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus can make you happier than any other king and any other kingdom that this world has to offer you. And, and Jesus is unabashed about the joy that he will give you. It's not this like, you know, added on prize that he pulls out from behind his back after you believe and say, here's just an added on bonus. Jesus is very upfront. He says that the primary motivation for the gospel is joy. John 15, Jesus says, I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete and full. Yeah, you've been, you know, trying all these other lesser joys. You've been trying everything that the world has to offer you and it satisfies for a little bit. But then it's just going to leave you more empty than when you even started. But I have come that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete and full and lasting. And let's be honest, that's what we all want. All of us want to be happy. That's the reason why any of us do anything. It's the reason why you got up this morning. That's the reason why you are here. Deep down at our core, we are all hedonists. We are going to go after anything that can give us the most amount of pleasure. And Jesus shows us that he is the one that our hearts were designed to feast on and that he can give us great joy. 
when I see the wise men's joy, I'm actually reminded of Jesus' parable about the treasure that was hidden in a field. It's a very short parable in Matthew 13. Jesus just says that his kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. And that when a man found the treasure in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had to buy that field. So metaphorically, this man has met Jesus. He has found the king and the kingdom that his heart has been searching for. And in his what did he go and sell everything that he has? In his joy. Jesus had taken over this man's heart. Jesus is now what this man loved more than anything. This, Jesus is what this man found more happiness in than anything. So out of the abundance and out of the overflow of his joyful heart, this man sold everything. He'd given away everything that he had ever had, and he was happier than he had ever been. Because Jesus is more valuable and joyful than anything that this world can offer you. That is the kind of joy and happiness that Jesus offers to us. And if you think about it, I think that the wise men were actually embodying this parable. In his joy, the man gave up all of his earthly treasures to gain Jesus. And these wise men, when their hearts were satisfied in Jesus, that resulted in them giving up their treasures. That's why the rest of verse 11 says that when they opened, then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, aside from being the OG of essential oils, whether the wise men did this intentionally, I think there is some symbolism for us to recognize about the gifts that the wise man brought to Jesus. We know from history and from scripture that certain ideas are often associated with the kinds of gifts that you bring, and especially in that culture, it was customary when you are in the presence of a superior to bring a gift. And so we know that gold was often given to a king. In 1 Kings chapter 10, when uh, we are hearing about uh, all of King Solomon's wealth, gold is used over 10 times. So by giving Jesus gold, the wise men are emphasizing the royalty and the kingship of Jesus. You are a king and you are deserving of gold. Frankincense was often used in the Old Testament in various offerings and sacrifices to God. We see it in Nehemiah 13, it would be offered on the altar of the temple as a saffering, uh, sacrifice and an offering to God. And so in offering frankincense to Jesus, these wise men are emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. They are saying, with gold that you are the king and with frankincense that you are God. And last, we see that the wise men gave Jesus some myrrh. This one takes a little more imagination because the connection isn't quite as obvious, but we know of two other times in the Gospels when Jesus was given myrrh. He's given it in Mark 15 at his crucifixion. He was offered some wine mixed with myrrh. And then he was offered it in John chapter 19 as his body was being buried. It was like a, a spice and a perfume that would be used in a burial. So the only other times that Jesus was given myrrh was in connection with his death. Myrrh was given to Jesus when life was leaving his body. So if gold recognizes Jesus' kingship, and if frankincense recognizes Jesus' divinity, then I think that the myrrh recognizes Jesus' humanity. The myrrh given to Jesus at his birth was a foreshadowing of his death. 
And Jesus, though the king and though God, he had put on human form and he had come to die. So there are many unusual things about Jesus and his birth story. You have the unusual star and the unusual men with an unusual message. Jesus truly is an unusual king with an unusual kingdom, but nothing makes Jesus' kingship and Jesus' kingdom more unusual than his willingness to die for his people. See, most kings would just sit in their throne room and they would order their army to go out and to fight a battle. You could have an evil king like Herod who would murder the babies of his own kingdom. And every now and then you might have a good king who would go into battle arm in arm with his army. But Jesus is not like other kings. Because we were not a part of Jesus' army. We were not on his side. We were on the other side of the battlefield. We were his enemies. Then Jesus came as one of us. He looked at us and he took mercy on us and he took on our flesh and he took on our frame and eventually he took on the sin of his own enemies. No other king would do that. He is a very unusual king with a very unusual kingdom. It's my prayer for today and as we go into the rest of this year that we would embrace this unusual king, an unusual kingdom. If you would, pray with me. Jesus, we confess that you are our king. You are deserving of all of our obedience, all of our loyalty. You are deserving of our lives. And so, Lord, we lay our lives down before you. We submit to you, and we ask that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would wean our hearts and our souls off of earthly, lesser kings and kingdoms. Satisfy our hearts because you are better. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.